from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. When they do come to work, they wander around. There are huge stacks of paper left over for months and months and months, and no one knows what to do with any of them. I'm thinking, why did the hotel not settle this case right away? The hotel didn't understand uh, the power of the St. Louis City jury. Pritzker put that statement out to sort of draw attention to the fact that he, he believed it was false. He thought that would be the best way to refute the allegation. Fauci saying things like, this is how COVID happened, and these are the facts about the science, that somehow that discouraged social media from allowing other voices. That is such a tenuous connection to actually colluding to suppress speech. It's unbelievable. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske, and what great fun to be back with you today. Now, last week, a St. Louis jury delivered a remarkable $177 million verdict against a local hotel. A woman was assaulted in her room by a security guard at the hotel. He used a master key to get in. What did it take to get to a judgment that big? And will the victim actually see any of this money? And last Friday, Attorney General Eric Schmidt crowed that he'd won court permission to depose Dr. Anthony Fauci and former White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki and more. What will these attorneys be allowed to ask about and what will it take for their First Amendment claims to succeed? Well, these are some big questions, so we're fortunate that our legal roundtable is in session today. And joining us now in studio is Nicole Garofsky. She's a former prosecutor for both state and federal court. She now practices at Jenkins and Kling PC Attorneys at Law. Nicole, welcome. Thanks for having me. And we're also joined today by Connie McFarlane-Butler. Connie is a former partner at Armstrong Teasdale, and in 2010, she founded her own firm. That's the law office of Connie McFarlane-Butler in Florissant. Connie, welcome back. Thank you. Good afternoon. And last but never least, Beavis Shock. He practices in Clayton at Shock Law. Beavis, welcome. Thank you. So today we're going to talk about this terrible hotel room sexual assault. We're going to talk about the Missouri Attorney General's latest litigation. We'll get to all that in just a bit. Before that, though, we need to talk about mouse droppings and cockroach infestations. Now, Attorney Mark Pedroli, he's a public interest lawyer in town, he'd filed several sunshine requests seeking records from St. Louis County's Animal Control Department. And the department was also the subject of two separate lawsuits from Pedroli. But the Post-Dispatch reports that the department nonetheless destroyed 20,000 pounds of records, not pages, pounds. It blamed an infestation of cockroaches and mice. So Petroli has now filed a lawsuit over the destruction. He calls it, quote, the largest illegal mass destruction of government documents in St. Louis County history. Nicole, if he can show that they destroyed records that he had previously requested prior to this destruction, could the county be in big trouble? Yeah, I mean, we have. So I actually dug into the exciting world of uh, the ordinances of how long you have to keep these things. And um, actually, the animal control has special, you know, retention laws that aim just towards them. They have if there's a dog bite, it has to be two years. If it's an investigation report, they have to save it for two years. If it's about animal licenses, they have to save it for five years. So, yeah, they violated these 
these laws. And yeah, it can be a problem. Um, I think one of the questions we don't have answered here is, you know, did they ever convert these to electronic files? I, you know, I would hope in this day and age that they also had electronic files of these records, but it kind of sounds like they didn't. Uh, so yeah, this could be a problem. So I saw some photos of these records being stored. I mean, they were tucked in the storage room, just piles everywhere. They're in old Chipotle boxes. I'm kind of skeptical there are electronic copies. Connie, I'm wondering, is there a difference here for the county if they destroyed records that were just the subject of a Sunshine Law request for government records, or if these were records that were actually part of these lawsuits that were already underway? Well, I, I, I don't think that there is a major difference, so to speak, um, uh, under the Sunshine Law Act. Once the government agency has been served with process, uh, then the custodian of records is under a duty not to destroy or manipulate any of the uh, documents that are being requested. Uh, with respect to the actual lawsuits that have been filed, uh, the courts, they do have uh, rules and regulations and laws in place concerning, or case law in place concerning uh, spoiling of evidence. Mm. So spoiling of evidence is basically the intentional destruction of evidence or concealment of evidence. Uh, if, in fact, the court determines that uh, the agency purposefully uh, destroyed these documents with the intent to commit fraud or to suppress the truth, then the court can instruct the jury or the judge can take a negative inference against the government agency uh, or against the, the party who actually destroyed the evidence. Now, uh, in certain circumstances, you might have a client that says that, hey, you know, the evidence is so bad against me, I'll take the negative inference uh, because if the documents uh, revealed that there were such bad things that were going on over at uh, the, 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 the animal shelter, maybe it's better that uh, we go with the negative inference and allow the judge to speculate or allow the judge to or the jury to speculate as to what was going on as opposed to producing the evidence. So maybe the evidence is worse than the negative inference. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> Have you ever heard of this happening, Beavis, where somebody's like, yeah, I might as well just destroy these records. It's better for my I, client. I, I've never heard of that. Maybe it would happen. My thoughts on this are threefold. First, 20,000 pounds of paper is a lot of paper for mice to eat. Can't live on paper anyway. Uh, I suspect what really happened was that the, the pages were in a complete state of disarray, that people had been just throwing boxes in the closet. When the Sunshine Act came in, they had a duty to go through it to see what had to be withheld and what couldn't. And nobody was going to be able to do that because it, you said you saw a picture and it was a mess. Yeah. So somebody said, I know what we'll do. We'll say the mice got them and we'll just throw them all away. So you think there could be this, this negative intent that Connie says would be key to getting to that negative inference? Well, I, I think so. Let's also note that maybe there really nobody at the animal shelter did anything wrong. In other words, they aren't covering up that they were eating dogs for breakfast or something. Instead, maybe it was just complete incompetence and the, the best thought was how to stop the uh, having to go through the papers and admit that everything was not properly indexed. Yeah, so maybe this was just they had poor record keeping for years and they were going to have to deal with that. Well, I, I think that, you know, um, I, I guess... Uh, 
with respect to the you know animal shelter itself, there are some facts that work in their favor uh, that the uh, the Animal Association of Missouri had just come in in September and taken over the management of the facility. So maybe they weren't as aware of what was going on in the process. Uh, they did call in the public health uh, administrator for St. Louis County and contacted her about these records and what should be done and whether or not it was a public health hazard mm-hmm. uh, for folks to be exposed to these records that supposedly had, you know, uh, uh, cockroach and, and, and mice feces and so forth on it. And the, the uh, uh, public administrator, uh, not public administrator, but the public health official is the one who actually gave the call to destroy the documents. Mm-hmm. So it may work in their favor that they had so many people involved in the process before the records were destroyed. So attorney Mark Pedroli, who again now has filed his third lawsuit against this particular county agency, he's now seeking a court order telling the county to stop destroying any more records. Now, we believe that they probably should have stopped doing that when he first filed the Sunshine request. Nicole, what teeth could an order like that have? Does that have more bite than the law itself saying if there's a Sunshine law request, you're not supposed to destroy this stuff? I mean, I don't know if it does. I think, you know, certainly if you get a court order from a judge telling you to stop destroy things, you better stop destroying things. I think that has a lot of teeth. Will it actually help them in the ultimate litigation? I'm not so sure. So talking about the Sunshine Law here today, we've seen numerous stories in recent months alleging Sunshine Law violations on the part of the city of St. Louis. It seems like there's maybe some sort of broken process there. Um, Attorney Alad Gross, who's another public interest type lawyer in St. Louis, he filed a lawsuit alleging a raft of them on the part of the city. He says the fines alone from this suit could reach $500,000. That seems like a really high number for a Sunshine lawsuit. Beavis, what do you make of that? Uh, I can't imagine that that would happen. I, I do think that, well, just for example, a couple of days ago, I had to go downtown to the clerk's office on a very minor and easy matter. It was complete chaos. Nobody knew what was going on. Nobody knew who was there. It's extremely bad in the clerk's office in terms of quality of personnel, understanding of their job, diligence. What I wanted done was supposed to have been done sort of automatically by sending in some papers. And if I hadn't gone down there, it never would have been done. So I do feel that we are in a situation of complete and gross incompetence by many members of the employment staff of the city of St. Louis, which means that they aren't going to be understanding and following things like the Sunshine Law, which is going to lead to trouble. They just got 500 grand from the uh, Rams. It's a tenth of one percent if I'm doing the math right in my head. No big deal. (laughs) No big deal. I like the theme running through Beavis's um, commentary today. He sees a lot of incompetence on the part of some of these government actors. Sometimes it is that simple. Yeah, I mean, so the Sunshine Law fines aren't huge, but they can get up to 5,000 apiece. So, you know, if they are doing this, if they can show that there's some intentional violations going on here, which, you know, I think they're dangerously close because, you know, there's been request after request. These are taking more than a year. I think, you know, the fines could start significantly adding up. So fines from these Sunshine Law cases, I found a story the Riverfront Times had written about just a few years ago. At the time, they said it was the biggest Sunshine Law penalty in Missouri history, $12,100. This would obviously be a giant escalation. What I've heard from some lawyers is that the big teeth with the Sunshine Law is that the attorney's fees, they add up, they add up. 
Connie, is that the true incentive for these cases? It's less about the fines you're able to get out of government agencies and more that the government agency may be forced to pay for all your time as a lawyer. Uh, I, I think that that's where, the, where you can find the teeth. Uh, in the actual statute itself. Uh, if the court finds by the preponderance of the evidence that, that the violation of the Sunshine Act was purposeful, then the court can award or shall award uh, all court costs as well as all reasonable attorney's fees. And the court can take into consideration the size of the jurisdiction uh, that's in violation of the Sunshine Act or the uh, the uh, political entity, rather, the size of the entity uh, that's in violation of the Sunshine Act, uh, as well as whether or not that entity uh, has been found guilty of purposefully violating the Sunshine Law previously. Hmm. And all of that can be taken into account account when awarding these ter- attorneys' fees. So I think that that uh, is a motivator for many attorneys. Is incompetence a, a legal excuse, Beavis? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, well, we are seeing a situation that's kind of COVID-related. A lot of employees didn't come into work. They still aren't at work. I don't know what they're doing at home. They're getting their paycheck. They really don't really want to come to work. When they do come to work, they wander around. There are huge stacks of paper left over for months and months and months, and no one knows what to do with any of it. There you have it, a first-hand account from apparently the city clerk's office. Happened two days ago. Two days ago. <laughs> We're talking today to our legal roundtable. That is Beavis Shock, who's with Shock Law in Clayton. We're also joined by Connie McFarland Butler of the law office of Connie McFarland Butler in Florissant, and Nicole Gorofsky. She's a former prosecutor now at Jenkins and Kling, PC. We do need to take a quick break. We'll be back shortly to continue this conversation with our panelists. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. Today, our legal roundtable is in session. We're joined by three expert attorneys sharing their thoughts on the law and some important high-profile cases happening here in St. Louis. We've just been talking about the Sunshine Law with Connie McFarland Butler. Uh, we're also joined today by Beavis Shock and Nicole Gorofsky. Now, I want to pivot here to talk a bit about some First Amendment matters. The first one, Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt, who I should mention, he is also running for Senate, uh, he announced Friday that he's gotten the court's permission to depose a host of officials. This is part of a lawsuit, State of Missouri versus Biden. And basically, Eric Schmidt and the state of Louisiana have teamed up to sue the White House, um, and they now have permission to depose Dr. Anthony Fauci, the former White House press secretary Jen Psaki, a bunch of other officials. It's part of a lawsuit alleging the federal government sought to silence its critics on social media, particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic. Beavis, what's at the heart of this case here? Well, if the government engages in activity to stop media outlets from speaking, that's a First Amendment violation. So let so if we start with does could could the suit have merit? The answer is yes. 
the fact that he's now gotten some uh, permission to depose these people will probably not be as important as seeing emails. Now, if in fact there was sort of a conspiracy between Zuckerberg and uh, the White House to stop, for example, the open discussion of whether the COVID-19 came about as a result of funding from Fauci, who were doing uh, enhanced transmission uh, research, which Fauci, of course, wouldn't ever want that to be a, something would be on his record. I think they got a legitimate problem. Uh, uh, the lawsuit has legitimacy. Uh, I think it's probably right that he gets to depose these people. I don't see any problem with it. So, Nicole, we know he's going to get to depose these people. When he has them there, can he ask Fauci basically anything? I mean, it is a pretty low threshold for getting to do what they call discovery, and depositions are part of discovery. But I am going to disagree with Beavis on the legitimacy of this lawsuit. I'm, I'm frankly shocked that they got through to being able to even do these depositions. So basically, this is an Eric Schmidt special where he says that Biden and others colluded with social media companies to suppress unfavored speakers. Uh, they really don't have any evidence of this. The evidence they presented in their motion to get to do this was that they're saying that by Fauci saying things like, um, this is how COVID happened, and these are the facts about the science, that somehow that discouraged social media from allowing other voices. That is such a tenuous connection to actually colluding to suppress speech. It's unbelievable. I am really shocked that this is going forward, but this judge in Louisiana has allowed him to take these depositions, and we'll see what happens. So this lawsuit, I will say, I was trying to get to the point of the collusion, because I was very interested in, is Mark Zuckerberg a Facebook mogul? Is he colluding with the federal government on this? And there was a lot of stuff that felt kind of fluffy, like Fauci's out there, you know, pushing his take on things. Then they get to a point where they're quoting Jen Psaki from a White House press conference. And she said at this press conference uh, that the government is flagging the White House, basically, is flagging problematic posts that they felt were spreading misinformation, bringing them to the attention of social media companies. Connie, could that potentially be a problem? Uh, I think that it could potentially be a problem um, because uh, uh, the White House is now being the gatekeeper and now alerting social media companies about speech uh, that's being uh, words for speech that's being used. So I think that, uh, that the White House walked a very fine line <laughs> in doing this, uh, uh, but I'm not surprised that uh, they got to the point where they are taking depositions. Mm -hmm. I think that they said enough in their motion uh, as a general rule, you know, high-ranking government officials, the courts don't allow them to just be uh, deposed uh, all willy-nilly because they want the government to be able to function and for high-ranking government officials not to be tied up in discovery and depositions all the time. Uh, however, the person who, or the, the proponent of the motion has to demonstrate that the person has some type of firsthand knowledge uh, that that party cannot get from any other source. Mm -hmm. So apparently they said enough in their motion to get this judge's attention. And maybe it didn't take a lot to get this judge's attention. I believe he was just appointed in 2018, and he's a Trump appointee. So that may have played a role in this being able to move forward so quickly. 
So let's say that what um, you know what they quote Jen Psaki as saying is true, and that they were flagging these problematic posts, bringing them to the attention of social media companies. Uh, Nicole, would would that be a problem? Still not speech suppression. I mean, you can bring something to someone's attention and not be suppressing it. I don't think it meets the threshold. Beavis, what what would you say to that? I would say it's fact based whether it meets the threshold. Uh, the judge concluded that there was enough stated to get over the bar to go forward to the next step. That's all that we have so far. Okay. So say there's something demonstrably false out there on social media. Say I'm seeing something that's like there's going to be, I don't know, there's this new virus spreading and it makes your ears fall off. And like the White House knows that that's flat out true. I mean, flat out false. Pardon me. I don't want to spread misinformation here on the airwaves. Um, Is this something where the White House could take matters into its hands and say, hey, social media, we want this suppressed? Does that open up a door for a lawsuit like this? Absolutely not. The First Amendment protects lies. This is something that is central to our system of government. The government cannot have pre-suppression of speech because they assert it's false. So it, it is – I mean – Certainly the government could issue a statement that says, no, there's no virus that's going to make your ears fall off. But they can't go to a, 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 a publication and say, you, sh- you must not publish this because it's false. But they can go to a publication that's, you know, a privately held publication and say to the person who runs that publication, you might want to take a look at this. I agree completely with that. They can okay. say, please don't do it. It's dumb. But that they can't say, you can't do it. And... That's the central point. Yeah, and this seems like this is what this lawsuit could come down to, right? Was it just that they were flagging things and saying, hey, FYI, this is false? Or were they sort of bringing the powers of government to bear? I see a lot in this lawsuit where they're suggesting, oh, well, they were threatening them in this way or that way. I'm not really seeing a direct connection here. I don't know how you read it. Well, I, I think that it can be a slippery slope. Uh, you know, was it a situation where they were simply flagging things and directing that to the attention of the social media giants? Or was it, in fact, uh, 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 something more uh, where they were actually coming together and colluding and saying that uh, these types of stories should not be circulated on social media sites? Mm-hmm. And And did they, in fact, cut people off from Twitter? In other words, make it so they couldn't post? Yeah, that's there a problem. Was no evidence of that whatsoever in this motion. Yeah. None. It is interesting. You know, they, they get at like the sort of Hunter Biden laptop story, which at that point, Biden was not in office. And that was something that a lot of social media sites buried. Trump was the president at that point. So it becomes a lot more complicated to hang that on the White House. Um, a lot of complicated things in this. And as you say, this comes back a lot of this. Schmidt's team is talking about this lab leak theory. They're saying this is a possibility. This is something where it shouldn't have been shut down. Um, as you say, this gets into the government becoming an arbiter of what's true. Well, a lot of good First Amendment questions here. Eric Schmidt got the victory of being able to say he could depose these officials. It'll be interesting to see what actually comes out of these depositions. One of you was saying it could come down instead not to what they say under oath, but what's in the emails. Are, are they going to be able to get these emails? Do we know where that stands? 
I don't know where that stands, but certainly if the judge is going to go as far as letting them be, be deposed, I'm sure the judge is going to allow the emails. Connie, I see you nodding to that, too. Oh, a- absolutely. So this opens the door. There's a whole lot of discovery could be happening in this case. Absolutely. So let's talk about another matter involving the First Amendment. This comes out of Illinois. And there, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker is threatening to sue television stations that run a negative ad against his campaign. The letters assert the claims in the ads amount to defamation against the governor and that by airing the ads, the TV stations could be subject to legal action. The campaign says the claims are not protected as political speech. Here's what Pritzker's lawyers wrote, quote, Your station is now on notice that it is airing a false and defamatory claim for which there is no evidence. Unlike candidates, independent organizations like a political action committee do not have a, quote, right to command the use of broadcast facilities. Nicole, is that a fair reading of the law right there? Well, so the law really focuses less on who's making the speech and more on who the speech is about. So I was a little confused by that statement. So the distinction is that Pritzker himself is a public figure. And so, you know, courts are much less likely to award damages to public figures in defamation cases because they put themselves out there in the public sphere. They have access to rebuttal, all of those reasons. So I don't necessarily know that it matters who is making the speech. Um, but it, it did look like there was uh, a problem potentially with this speech, and it could have been defamatory because there was no, there's no evidence whatsoever that Pritzker did what the ad or the person in the ad said that he did. Hmm. Boy, I feel like as a journalist, you know, it's hard enough to make sure that all the journalists on staff are getting their stories so that they are all, you know, every fact checks out. Do these broadcast entities also have to play fact checker on every commercial they air? That seems like a tough standard. Connie, any thoughts on this one? Uh, no, I don't think that the radio or the television stations have to play fact checker. Uh, as a general rule, if it is a political ad, uh, then the stations have to take the, if if it's a political ad from a candidate, uh, it's a viable candidate who's running for federal or state office. Then the television stations have to take the ads and they have to run the ads. That's the law. And they cannot charge one price for one political candidate versus another price for another political candidate. So uh, and they're not allowed to edit or censor uh, these ads that are submitted to them. Now, now, if these ads, in fact, you know, violate federal obscenity laws, uh, then they can reject those ads. But as a general rule, they take those ads as they receive them, and they have to and they have to air them. They have to run them. They can't just say, "I don't like this candidate. I'm not going to run this commercial." But I think Pritzker's letter was more of, uh, "You are now on notice officially that there is, you know, defamatory content in the ad." I think it was more of that kind of. Um, showboating mm-hmm. than it was an actual lawsuit. Beavis. I mean, when it comes to politicians, how do you know they're lying? Their lips are moving. So uh, to me, it's, it's, it's a big nothing. I think Nicole has it exactly right. The, Pritzker put that statement out to sort of draw attention to the fact that he, he believed it was false. He thought that would be the best way to refute the allegation, which is fine. I mean, he could yeah. have just run an ad that said, I didn't do the things I'm accused of doing. In fact, I'm doing a good job for Illinois, and here's why to vote for me. But he thought this would work better. This is all a big, big bunch of wind. 
So, okay, big bunch of wind, but later in the same story where I'm reading about this threat to this broadcaster, I read that Pritzker's campaign pressured a, a printer. This is called Paddock Publications. He said they had to stop printing newspapers that had been funded by the same conservative activist who tried to fund these TV ads. He threatened to pull out of debates sponsored by the printer's publications unless they stopped printing these newspapers. Now, being in the newspaper business myself, I'm like, whoa, I don't want people threatening my printer because they don't like what I'm printing. And here is the governor of Illinois doing this. Is this potentially problematic on a First Amendment front? Well, I mean, let him make the threat. So his threat is we're not going to use you anymore. We're going to stop doing business with you. Well, I let him do that. I mean, I mean, Connie spoke about these laws that require stations to be fair. I don't agree with those laws. I think the station ought to do whatever they want. Certainly NPR has a view, right? A pretty strong view. And I think they ought to be entitled to push it and squelch nice conservatives like me. See, but you're not doing that. You're bringing me on the air, which is sweet I, of you. Possibly I should have squelched this, this perspective against the neutrality of public radio, but we will continue here with our discussion. Um, Connie, what, what do you make of, of Beavis's uh, claims there? He's obviously not a fan of the, the Fairness and Broadcasting Act or whatever this decade old uh, policy is. Well, uh, uh, <laughs> I, I somewhat agree with Beavis, and that that's going to be a rare occasion. But... <laughs> I mean, you know, it's your station. You have certain uh, listeners or subscribers, and and they tend to have a certain political view or stance. And so if you want to run ads for political candidates that support your position, then so be it. Uh, You know, know, typically your candidates are going to pick those stations that are more favorable to their views. You're going to have conservatives that are advertising on Fox. You're going to have more liberal candidates who are going to be advertising on on MSNBC. So, you know, uh, so, you know, uh, let the stations and the parties do what they will. Uh, But I think that with respect to this particular story, uh, I think that this, you know, making demand uh, upon the various uh, publishers and news stations uh, has worked to a certain extent uh, uh, with the printer where uh, the governor threatened to pull out of the, uh, the debate or the forum that he was going to participate in. And then there was another add uh, the scream uh, commercial where a woman was about to be attacked or something to that effect walking down the streets in Chicago. And it's my understanding that the campaign sent a letter regarding that particular ad and then that ad was pulled. So they've had some success with sending these demand letters. So if it's worked twice before, the third time might also be a charm. I mean, I actually feel like Pritchard's taken a, a play out of the sort of Trump line playbook here. I mean, Trump is the king of saying, I'm going to take my ball and go home if you, you know, media agency don't agree with me on my conditions for me appearing at your debate or whatever it is. And I think uh, sort of the uh, Republican Party has t- sort of taken on that tactic. And now here it is, Pritzker doing it and we're calling it out. So. Mm-hmm. You know, I think this is this is now going to be happening more often. We do need to take a quick break here, but coming up next, we're going to come back and talk about a sex assault at a downtown hotel and a huge verdict that came from a St. Louis jury. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. We are talking today to our legal roundtable. That is Beavis Shock, who practices in Clayton at Shock Law. We're also joined by Connie McFarland Butler. She runs the law office of Connie McFarland Butler in Florissant. And Nicole Gorofsky, she's a former prosecutor in both state and federal court, and she now practices at Jenkins and Kling PC Attorneys at Law. Now, we have a case here making some big headlines. A woman was awarded a huge verdict last week by a St. Louis jury. She was apparently sexually assaulted by a hotel staffer who used the master key to get into her room at the Hyatt Regency at the Arch. The staffer pleaded guilty back in 2018 to first-degree burglary and misdemeanor sexual abuse, and he was sentenced to probation. She then ended up filing a civil suit that finally went to court hundred and seventy seven million dollars. This is a huge verdict. Nicole, what do you think happened here? Well, one hundred and forty nine million of those damages are punitive damages. So that's a punishment to the hotel. And I you know, the jury can take things into consideration about, you know, how much money they have and what's going to hurt. But I think the key to this case was the fact that they hired this guy with a record, a sexual assault record, and then here he comes and does the same thing again. I mean, that is a huge no-no for a hotel. Absolutely. I mean, this is every woman's worst nightmare. And Connie, reading about this case, reading about a $177 million verdict, I'm thinking, why did the hotel not settle this case right away? Uh, I suspect that uh, the hotel didn't understand uh, St. Louis City juries. Uh, Also, I think that the hotel may have minimized what occurred in this case, uh, because when I saw the $177 million verdict, and then I saw that this man got probation, uh, it prompted me to dig into what actually happened in this case. And so I pulled the complaint uh, for the defendant in the case. And in the complaint, the defendant was charged with entering the room and and he touched the woman's private parts through her clothing. Uh, There was no sexual penetration, so to speak. And I suspect that the lawyers for the hotel thought that since there was no sexual penetration and that it was simply touching outside of the clothing, that it wouldn't go this far and that the jury wouldn't come back with a a verdict so large. So that they maybe made this calculated decision like, ah, you know, we're we're not going to give you $15 million for this or something like this. Who knows what they were offering to settle for? Right. Obviously, as you say, St. Louis City Jury, they made the wrong call on this. Absolutely. And a lot lot of lawyers do. And I'm not quite sure why they continue to underestimate the power of the St. Louis City Jury. A couple things come to my mind. One is it takes nine jurors to agree, not 12. Because this is a civil case. Civil case. And I've always thought that number should be higher Hmm. um, because $177 million sounds to me like way too much for what happened. However, let's keep in mind the juries see what some of these CEOs make. They probably don't know how much the CEO of this hotel makes, but there are news stories that come out about some CEO making $100 million. And the jury might think, if he's getting $100 million, we're going to take $100 million away because he failed to protect the public and do his most basic job. And I think there's some fairness to that. 
There is a sense in my in my mind, though, that some people don't really have an idea how much money that is and how that affects the the, the system of commerce we have. I mean, I mean, if if this thing doesn't get reduced way back down, they're out of business. Yeah. I mean, you can't. You, no no company of that's running some hotels. Maybe I mean maybe the gigantic ones could, but they just can't handle numbers like that. So there's a huge problem with the public not understanding. What what these numbers can can do to affect employment in our community? I'm going to switch to the victim perspective for a minute. And when we're talking about, oh well, the guy only got probation because it was this, you know, minimal touching. And I'm going to kind of argue with that. My rebuttal to that would be, look, this guy broke in her room. He touched her genitals. Yes, it was through the clothes. But when the person is suffering the emotional distress for all of these years following this event, does is it literally or is she thinking about what the touching was? It's a crime. It's a traumatic crime. And I imagine that's how they won over the jury. Sure. I mean, this is such a violation. I think every woman hearing this is thinking, you know, that would be such a nightmare for it to happen. And, you know, Beavis is saying this is a problem for our system of commerce to have a verdict this big. The idea of the punitive damages, is that something you want to defend, Nicole? Well, I'm going to say, isn't it interesting for Beavis to say that because Beavis doesn't want government regulation in other areas of our world, right? So why are we regulating juries? I mean, I I think we have a system, a judicial system that is set up to look at the things that you discussed, what the CEO salary is and all of those things in deciding on punitive damages. And that's exactly what they did here. And I didn't advocate government control over this. I'm just talking about what the effects are. Sure. So we're talking about $149 million in punitive damages. Half of that goes to the state of Missouri for a tort victims compensation fund. A lot of us hear a verdict like $177 million. Wow, this woman is going to be rich for the rest of her life. That's not necessarily how these things play out. And that's not what happens ever. The fund that gets that money has no money in it ever because what happens is that the attorneys settle. They slide, they, they, they take a 10% haircut, call it a settlement, and the state gets nothing. That's, that's how that works. So if, if I'm the attorney for this case, I'll say, okay, well, let's set aside the hundred. $177 million. We'll settle for $167 million, and at that point, this fund gets cut out? It's that simple? You got it. Wow. Connie, I see you nodding. This is something Beavis has, right? It's something I've done. <laughs> <laughs> we agree <Confession>. again. <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> but so, okay, this is a problem. Obviously, this is set up so that we can have these things go into this fund. How is it that we see then this is just a routine thing where these, these cases get settled? What's the, what's the point of the settlement rather than saying, give me the whole $177 million? Well, because the victim is not going to get the whole $177 million. The attorney is not going to get the entire $177 million. Uh, so uh, after the verdict comes in and, and the hotel chain now sees that, you know, we have this massive liability sitting over here, then we can come to the table and say, okay, you can pay $177 million, or we can sit down and come up with a settlement where you pay the $28 million in compensatory damages and then we can cut in half that $149 million in punitive damages and you pay me outright and we don't go through this, uh, you know, appeal 
that's going to take years. Uh, and you save some money, and we don't have to put any additional time into working up the case through an appeal. So. Yeah, so practically speaking, that's exactly how it happens. It's going to go to an appeal, and a lot of punitive damages cases get caught on appeal. And the lawyer for the plaintiff represents the plaintiff, not that state fund. Yeah. And so the lawyer is going to try to do the best that he or she can to get his or her client the best deal possible. And that's practically how that this happens. Yeah, and this is something where if there wasn't a settlement, is there any chance this hotel wouldn't find a way to appeal this case? Oh, I think this punitive damages is getting struck, at least in some way. Okay. It's getting cut. Let's put it that way. It's something where if it went to the appeals court, the appeals court is going to say, yeah, sorry, that's too much based on what we see before us. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times if the uh, punitive damage award is more than five times the compensatory damage award, which this is, mm-hmm. five times the compensatory damage award would be 140 million dollars. So it's in excess of that. So I think that it would get the court's attention. And the judge might do something called remittitur, which is a fancy legal term, which means the judge says, either you agree to take a lower amount or I'm giving a new trial. Remittitur. I like learning these fancy legal words. I fully intend to pull this out at a cocktail party. Um, and I'm sure everyone will be very impressed with my my use of that. How interesting. Okay, let's shift gears. Let's go to criminal court. Now, we have a St. Louis rapper went to trial this week on charges that he's a felon in possession of a firearm and also obstruction of justice. Now, there's a bunch of photos of him out there with a gun. And yes, he is indeed a felon. But this rapper, this guy is named 30 Deep Grimy, Grimy with two Ys, uh, he claimed that these were props and that that was part of his art. Is that potentially a compelling argument, Connie? Absolutely not. <laughs> I, I think you have to dig a little deeper into the facts of the case. Uh, this uh, 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 rapper, uh, Grimy, uh, the, 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 the name alone would probably get you a conviction. But uh, uh, he was stopped back and or convicted back in 2016 for possession of a weapon uh, and pled guilty to that. And it was a felony. Uh, some years later, he stopped by uh, the police. There are four gentlemen in a car. He's in the backseat with another gentleman. And then there is a, a Beretta 9 millimeter that's sitting between the two gentlemen in the car. And and that's what caused, you know, these uh, additional charges to be filed. Now, he denied that it was his weapon. He tried to claim it was the other gentleman's uh, weapon. Uh, but the prosecutor had these photographs showing that he was in these various pictures holding this exact same weapon in these pictures. Uh, and unfortunately for this gentleman, he didn't do a very smart thing. After he was arrested, he apparently sent text messages to the individual who originally owned the gun and asked that person to falsify a bill of sale to indicate that the person sitting on the backseat of the car with him was, in fact, the purchaser or the owner of that gun. So I don't see this at all as a First Amendment issue. I have the right to show these weapons in, in, in my in my uh, video or in these photographs. You know, I just think it's a situation where a criminal has uh, a done something stupid. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Grimey is in big, big trouble. But the more interesting legal issue would be if we didn't actually have the gun and it was just the uh, photographs of him with this gun because one of the elements of the offense is that you do have to show it's readily fireable. Hmm. So 
I think that would have been a much more interesting case. But in this situation, Mr. Grimey is in big, big trouble. Well, and uh, Nicole, you are right about that. We do have an update on this case. He pled guilty yesterday. This was day two of his trial. Uh, The feds agreed to drop the charge of obstruction. And now he can face up to 10 years in prison because Connie was right. This was not a compelling legal argument. He began to realize, I believe, in court the jam he was in. Beavis, thoughts on this one? Uh he probably made a very good choice, and he's not going to get ten years for it. He'll get a couple of years, probably, and that's all. He maybe he's, maybe he'll serve two years. So you think he will end up going to prison, though, just not for ten? I, I would say so. So this rapper, um, he previously gave his lawyer quite an endorsement. He had a previous single where he was talking about a case that he had in county court. He's talking about PA in this little clip I'm going to play for you guys. Uh, PA, of course, is the prosecuting attorney. And that is the St. Louis rapper, 30 Deep Grimy. Uh, quite a shout out to his lawyer there. Um, and do you think that's going to help him in, in future cases that he's saying um, made the PA look stupid? Well, uh, if he is, in fact, uh, uh, if his if this attorney, Mr. Foster, if his bread and butter is criminal defense work, then absolutely. It's a good advertisement. Is it you know, free advertisement? Apparently, I, I'm not familiar with uh, Mr. Grimey's work, uh, but apparently, you know, he has a song that has 14 million views on YouTube. He's a big deal, Connor. Right. And he has another song that has 14 million views, if not more, on YouTube. So he's got quite the audience. So I. I think that that works for Mr. Foster, that Mr. Grimey is telling the entire YouTube world that he made the prosecutor look stupid. Something that I think all attorneys could aspire to is, is getting this kind of uh, credit in a rap song. Uh, Nicole? Yeah, as a former prosecutor, I don't think it's going to make a big difference to the prosecutor either. I think uh, half my career was listening to jail calls of uh, criminals calling me crooked. My attorney's crooked, they would say all the time. So they're very used to this. Very, very used to this. Okay, well, uh, 14 million views. This is a rapper that we should be familiar with. I think we're all showing our age on this one. Um, let's switch gears in our, our final five minutes here to something that is, frankly, a lot more serious. But it's something that I think all of St. Louis has been grappling with um, since Monday. Obviously, on Monday, St. Louis saw a horrific school shooting. Uh, we now know that the St. Louis police shot the suspect within just about 10 minutes of him entering the school. The school also had metal detectors. There were seven security guards on site, um, albeit they were unarmed security guards. Um, and it was still not fast enough to present this, this to prevent this tragedy. A teacher died. A student died. Seven others are injured. It's been so hard to, to look at these posts and pictures of even the people who survived. I mean, these are some pretty very serious injuries here. This is not, however, a case like Uvalde, where the police stood outside of the school building. I mean, the St. Louis police got right in there and they took this guy down. Do you think we might still see a lot of litigation over this shooting? And Beavis, where could this end up going? Well, the Missouri Supreme Court has said that if a gun seller sells to someone who obviously shouldn't have the gun, that that is called negligent entrustment and that person can be liable. So that's an aspect of it. Now, uh, generally, the school will not be liable because they didn't have enough security. I mean, seven security guards unarmed are probably really helpful if the kids get a little unruly with each other, that kind of thing. But but if you got a school shooter, you got to fight a gun with a gun. That's the only way you're going to get out of that one. 
But you said that the, these going back to whoever sold the guy this gun, and there's apparently a report that he went to a gun show in St. Charles County. He was turned down, but he was later sold this AR-15, a ton of ammo, was believed to be a private dealer. You said that if he was obviously somebody who shouldn't have been sold a gun to, that seems like a pretty subjective standard. Well, it is. Um, there, an, there's an age issue. There is a, a mental health issue. Uh, was the person seemingly thinking in a disjointed manner, that sort of thing, saying things that didn't make any sense. When a person's nose will say, hey, this person doesn't look right to me. And you say, hey, I'm not doing it. And a gun dealer has to do that kind of check the way that Missouri law is written? That's no. how I, go ahead. No, I don't believe so. Missouri law basically says a private dealer doesn't have any regulation whatsoever. Uh, the gun show was different. They had to do a background check. But a private dealer does not have to do any kind of background check or checking on the person they're selling it to. And I, and so a negligent entrustment case, although that's valid and it exists, this kid would have had to stand in front of this person and tell him his life story you know, to make him feel like this is not an appropriate person to be selling a gun to for him to be liable for that negligent entrustment. I mean, this, this is an issue with our gun laws. So there's a different standard for a gun show like the one that turned him down and these private dealers. This is enshrined in Missouri law? It is. Wow. That's right. So this gun, this guy at this gun show does the right thing. This other guy has no incentive to do the right thing. And the law doesn't tell him he has to. Beavis, do you, do you think that reading is right? I'm not going to ever disagree with Nikki on anything. Only Connie. <laughs> That's Just kidding. Right. <laughs> but today, we, Connie and I have been allied. <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I think she's sizing it up right. I'm sure we disagree strongly about the importance of gun laws yeah. and what they should be. But sure. Um, uh, I, I think she's correct. Okay. So, Connie, that's 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 dispiriting to think that this guy who didn't do the check that this other gun show did, um, that this person might not end up having any liability in the lies of, uh, eyes of Missouri law. Well, you know, I, I guess it depends on what the shooter's background was. I'm not quite sure what the um, gun show uh, participant in St. Charles saw what or, flagged this for or, them? Or, what flagged yeah. it for them? Uh, because according to the news reports, this young man did not have any type of criminal history. So uh, I'm not quite sure what flagged it for St. Charles. Um, uh, maybe, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe he hadn't taken his meds when he went out to St. Charles, but he took his meds when he went to see the dealer and the dealer felt that he was A-OK and sold the AR-15 to him. It could have been something as simple as he didn't want to wait around for the background check. Mm -hmm. And so he he willingly withdrew. So I'm looking at 600 rounds of ammo, and I'm not a gun person. I don't know what I'm talking about. But for me, that would be a huge red flag if someone wants that much. Could that be enough for a, a regulated gun show to say, eh, I'm getting a bad vibe? No. no. Lots of people buy lots of ammo all the time. And that explains a lot about where we are. <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing. Sarah, I'll take you shooting anytime you want to go. We oh can learn boy. a little bit about guns. Oh, boy. Here we go. Things that I don't know that I want to learn about. But I have really enjoyed learning about the law today. Beavis Shock, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Beavis is with Shock Law in Clayton. I also want to thank Nicole Gorofsky of Jenkins & Kling PC, Attorneys at Law. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And last but not least, Connie McFarland Butler of the Law Office of Connie McFarland Butler in Florissant. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Good to have you back today. It's been good to be back. This episode was produced by Danny Wisentowski and Alex Hoyer.
audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.